it's clear in the world of today, it's either you're disrupting or you're being disrupted. The ability to coordinate and connect work has never been more important. The power of ideas, the power of knowledge is stronger than anything on earth. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Center Stage podcast. My name is Joe Cahill. I am the Chief Customer Officer of PMI. I'm really looking forward to our segment today. The changes we are accommodating from the COVID-19 pandemic are still reverberating across our work. Perhaps no industry has been impacted greater than healthcare. This is a practical conversation around responding to dramatic change, leveraging global teams of capability, and building resilience in a time of enormous uncertainty. This Center Stage podcast is with President and CEO of AssureCare and the Managing Director of Assure Health, Dr. Youssef Ahmad. Dr. Youssef Ahmad has over 25 years of tripod healthcare experience, including health insurance, physician group practices, and multi-hospital health systems. For the past five years, he has been leading AssureCare, transforming it from a startup to a high-growth company with industry-leading care management technology platforms. Prior to joining AssureCare, Dr. Ahmad served as the president and CEO of Mercy Health in Cincinnati, Ohio, one of the largest health systems in America with over 150 settings of care. He is board certified and a fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives and also board certified in the American College of Medical Practice Executives. Dr. Ahmad is pursuing an MS in Information and Knowledge Strategy from Columbia University. He holds a doctorate in public health, master's in health services administration, and a master's in business administration. Uh, so I'd like to welcome Dr. Youssef Ahmad here today to Center Stage Podcast. Thank you, Joe, and to you and the Project Management Institute for having me today. I'm excited to be here. So let's just jump right into it. Um, I have a lot of questions that we want to delve into with you today. Your expertise places our focus on leadership that is necessary in our times of disruption and the required innovation that's needed to get through it. As a senior executive leader in the healthcare industry, you are experienced in facing these disruptions and certainly um, for the need, of, need for change. So let's start off with your leadership experience in healthcare and you know, how you've built capabilities in your organizations. You know, tell us about your background and why this is uh, a field of passion for you. Thank you for that question, Joe. It's a terrific, terrific question. It kind of a question that has defined my career. You know, I graduated with a degree in computer information systems and everybody except me went into other fields than healthcare. So they picked aviation, banking, uh, technology, and I was the only uh, graduate who picked healthcare with a lot of intent behind it because I thought healthcare is the, the industry that allows you to make a difference in the people's li in the lives of others. You know, there's nothing more rewarding than being able to provide help to those in need. So it was with a very, uh, I would say, laser sharp focus that I actually uh, picked healthcare. It's like being born into a religion and then converting into another. So people who convert are a lot more convicted about it. So I chartered myself a career path with health insurance physician group practice in a multi-hospital health system, which is called the tripod of healthcare. But all my life, um, and I'm going to preface this comment with a statement that I never feel like I'm a victim of the circumstance, but I was a teenager immigrant 
as a freshman in this great country. And my very first day in America, I was being asked to identify myself against an ethnic card of, you know, are you a Caucasian and Pacific Islander and Hispanic, uh, African-American? And I had to pick other for the first time in my life. And, you know, back 30 years ago, there were 6 billion people. And I, I was a little shocked. I'm like, you know, there are 3 billion people that look like me, you know. But for, what, for various reasons, you know, uh, I had to identify myself with other. But I also learned that I had to get better just to be equal. The reason I say that is because people of my ilk and background, they never really got to do things that I was privileged to do in healthcare. For example, you never saw a computer programmer become the president of a medical group or the CEO of a multi-billion dollar health system. That just doesn't happen. Uh, so I had to really work hard, surround myself with a lot of strong critics and well-wishers to, to help me charter my career path. And, and you know, it's been, a, it's been a blessing. I didn't get there by myself, by any uh, means of the imagination. A lot of people have helped me, and I continue to pay forward. I can do that right, Joe. So let, let me ask you if you can just share with us some of the struggles that you've faced in your career, because, you know, part of leadership is overcoming challenges, barriers, you know, in order to really lead an organization. Maybe, maybe there's a story you can tell, uh, you know, within your career, a leadership story? I have several to share, Joe. Um, one I would like to share with you is I was 21 years old and I was working for a large payer in the country and we were going through Y2K. If you remember back in the day when the war was about to end <laughs> and I had done that successfully, had programmed 40 million lines of COBOL code and I asked my boss that, hey, I'd like to be the chief information officer and this is where you know you you can't help but sometimes people will stereotype you and they're like well you're younger than my youngest son and I'm like you know so what can your youngest son do cobalt programming like you know uh, and, and what I maybe I was a little uh, naive at the time uh, but what I learned was that I had to arm myself with the right didactic knowledge as well as making sure that my experience kept supporting that didactic knowledge. I'll give you a specific example. So I enrolled myself into the master's program of health administration at Xavier University. Prior to me enrolling at Xavier, no individual with a computer background had pursued that, that degree because it, it was not, it was unheard of. But I said, listen, if I want to be a strong student of healthcare, I must understand healthcare as a discipline, right? And we are so complicated in, in America. Healthcare is not this complicated rest of the world. But we spend the most money on healthcare compared to any other industrialized nation. And we have the least satisfied citizenry. And so I said, hey, let me go and, and, and arm myself didactically understand healthcare. So anything that I pursued after my undergraduate was to make sure I understood the industry better. So I did a master's in, in health administration. I did a doctorate in public health. But I, I thank some of my professors, some of my colleagues who really helped me think about, hey, if you want to further yourself in the industry, you got to pick a different lane. you gotta, you got to change your swimming lanes. And that has actually helped me with, you, you get a doctorate in public health. You can have a lot of conversations with, whether it's physicians, healthcare administrators, 
government officials. That has, that has served me well. Well, let me talk about knowledge management as a general topic. I mean, how have you personally managed as an individual and then helped your team members build knowledge capabilities? We forget 50 to 80% of what, of what we have learned after one day. And, and, we, and we forget 97 to 98% of what we have learned after a month. So when people ask you, well, Yusuf, you, you have so many degrees, I can't believe you kept educating yourself. And my answer is a little facetious. I'm like, well, I, I can't believe you didn't because there's so much to learn. And I feel like things are changing fast because of the advent of technology, uh, automation. Uh, and we as a society you know, are, are less tolerant. We, we want things perfect. We want things fast. And I feel like, uh, you know, for me, that's a driver. Uh, because knowledge doesn't get repleted. You, you, you multiply knowledge as you share. So I have always had that focus. Some of that was my, my parents with, hey, you, you got to get yourself educated. But I've used the same sort of uh, encouragement with my organization associates I get to work with where you, know, you have to give them an environment where uh, there's psychological safety. They can learn. Uh, they can fail and fail frugally. Uh, they should have what I call the obligation or the expectation to dissent. Only because I have an idea and I'm the CEO doesn't mean it's the right idea or the best idea. But if you empower them enough to challenge the idea, the end product uh, is that much better. Let me understand from your perspective, uh, how can teams better practice resilience and uh, risk-taking, right? So you can kind of touch on a couple of things there. You have to have that psychological safety. But once you establish that, which is a, you know, that's a hard thing to do. How do they then better practice resilience and risk-taking? This is my experience that once you get past psychological safety and you've created an, an environment, a congenial environment of learning, you have to communicate uh, through multiple aspects, multiple uh, fora, uh, because one-third of all projects in the world fail due to poor communication. No matter how good the strategy is, how strong people's will are, how talented the team is. But if you don't communicate, one third of projects fail due to that. And I feel like you also have to encourage honesty and transparency. You have to decentralize knowledge sharing. Uh, one um, thing I learned the hard way, Joe, is I, I, I was never taught that you should pair somebody's talent with their passion and purpose. And I have seen all my career that you can get an A player, but they'll perform as a B player if, if their will and their passion don't jibe with their talent base. So, you know, we work as a healthcare technology company, and sometimes I get to interview some of the brightest people in the world. And some of them tell me, listen, Dr. Ahmad, I don't care if you're selling hot dog or curing cancer, but to us that matters. You have to have an affinity you have to have a passion for healthcare. You have to have a passion for improving a human life. Especially in healthcare, you know, they, they, they come to seek care uh, with a stranger at their most vulnerable time, often. So I feel like I would say communication is big. I would say pairing passion with talent is big. I would say decentralizing knowledge sharing you know, is good. I think you should provide updates with regularity. Uh, because if you don't communicate often, people will make up stories in their mind. You know, and there's a concept I learned. I would just uh, leave the answer with this point. It's called 
threat rigidity, which means during times of stress or, or anxiety, we stop listening to more intelligible forces. We are drawn towards things that we are used to. And that's what kind of happened with COVID here, right? We, we, we are, I would say, arguably the best country in the world from talent, technology, people, processes. But it was like we, we were like a deer with the, with the headlights because we had what I call threat rigidity. You know, there are three basic T's in public health we are taught when there is a pandemic. The three T's are testing, tracing, and treatment. And we happen to be deficient severely in all three of them. Let's let's go a little deeper on COVID nineteen. Uh, you know that there was a need for a rapid vaccine solution, and um, you know it certainly revealed you know the need for collaboration um, you know, across the board, right? It, you know, collaboration across countries, organizations, sectors, disciplines, roles. I mean, it, it could have been the best example of where collaboration uh, was needed for success. How can greater collaboration be achieved, particularly for complex projects like these? Yeah, I think for complex projects, I, I would say you, you have to unite people through facts. Because if you go back a year and a half ago, as new facts are being revealed, we are taking positions accordingly. And, and not to make a political statement, Joe, but you know, some of my friends say, well, you know, masks were not good and then they became good. Yeah, because as you follow new data, you have to follow that trend. Now, any public health individual will tell you with a modicum of intelligence that public health 101 tells you you should wear a mask, irrespective of your political position, right? So that's science. But I think you have to unify people around facts. You have to articulate during a pandemic like COVID, what is the most important things that matter? For example, people's safety matters right? You have a healthcare system that is that got overburdened. It was burdened to begin with. There's maldistribution of clinicians and, and people where we live. And a lot of people were not uh, given their regular primary care because hospitals were full of COVID patients, right? So there is a, there's, we're not behind the eight ball. And then there's a concept in, in healthcare that I sus- subscribe to that's called take care of the caregiver. You know, you have, you have a doctor and a nurse or a social worker or a care manager working 10, 12, 20 hours a day. Fatigue kicks in. Then they're prone to medical errors. Did you know that medical errors is the third leading cause of death in America? It's shocking and it's unconscionable despite all the electronic medical records we have, right? But there's a lot of other confounding factors that lead to that. So I would say... You know, from a pandemic perspective, are we, are we doing better now? Absolutely. I think communicating around facts, communicating frequently, I think being vulnerable, I would say, is a strategy that I have used. And I say vulnerability with a lot of genuineness, right? It's okay to not have an answer. It's okay to say, hey, we will be embracing a little chaos while we are innovating. Because most of life is not black or white. It's, it's gray. A lot of times people will say, oh, is it this answer or is it this answer? Well, it's, it's, not, it's not so black and white, you know. Um, so I would say, you know, those are some of the learnings, you know, I have had. And I would also say that, uh, you know, follow the science when it comes to the pandemic. Uh, 
it's it, there's no there's no argument in this, at least in my mind whether it's masks whether it's vaccines i certainly respect people's religious preference and i think we are blessed to live in a country where we we, we get to decide for ourselves a lot but when you have a pandemic and if you go back and in because i i'm a student of public health whether it's you know smallpox or or measles or or the spanish flu you know unless you you address it head on you can actually worsen the situation and i believe had we done a better job in communicating of course hindsight is 2020 but as a as a nation had we done a good job communicating we would have lost less lives i'm convinced of that uh, i think there's no doubt about that it's a a discipline the communication discipline is a even when you do it at, at your best you're you're leaving stuff on the table right it's it's an ever, ever evolving thing particularly when the facts keep rolling in <laughs> and you have to you have to pivot and adjust so let's touch on project skills you know within this context um, how do project skills help organizations teams you know successfully implement uh, some of the changes that are needed so project skills are salient and extremely critical because we all have finite time and finite money and we have to make sure we are maximizing that right we also have to make sure that you know what is expected of us i often ask my project teams you know what is the larger goal what does success look like can you define that some of the success can be objectified time dollars efficiency effectiveness some of the success is a little intangible right and i feel like that's where some of the technical project managers have difficulty on the gray area like okay if you are building a hospital or you're implementing an application a large enterprise application you know do you know what success looks like you know um and, and i feel like that's an area where uh, we are doing a better job could always do a better job but 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 identifying and i would say quantifying that has been often hard for project managers because they get the basic tenets of project management right on time on budget but there's so much more behind it meaning are you motivating your team as a project manager you know what are the tips and tricks to motivate people and people get there's no monolithic recipe for motivation motivation comes from you know people prefer motivation that's customized to them you know all my life i like to be recognized privately with my boss behind the back i never like the big public recognition that's just me a lot of people like hey give me a uh, give me an award in public so i feel like we we have to understand our our teammates a little better uh we we have to also make sure what is it that matters to our customer so when implementing a project for a customer what is the 20 80, 80 pareto do you know what 20% of this application you're implementing what 80% bang will it deliver and i feel like that sort of focus uh, helps that sort of focus on project teams is 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 critical and i think we have to honestly uh, help each other out more like gone are the days when you know uh, the day ends and and okay i'll talk to you tomorrow and it's all about work i think it's changing where i see this in my organization where and maybe it's it's we can thank covid for this or the pandemic it used to be that all my career my my private life revolved around my work and i'm seeing a change and i feel like that's one of the reasons why last week we heard 4 and 1/2 million americans workers left their jobs because i think 
people are figuring out what's what's a higher priority. I can tell you this. I can be replaced at work and not too many people will miss me, but I can be replaced at home and people will miss me. You're touching on what we call power skills at PMI, uh, you know, leadership, collaboration, communication. These are all those soft skills that uh, without which you're not really going to have high success rates with projects. So, uh, so yeah, I want to talk to you about your, uh, your talk, you touched on your background at the top of the, the podcast and uh, you know, with that technical background coming in, layering in all that, the application of the healthcare um, profession. So technology, healthcare, then leadership. Can you give us some insight into the, the world of automation as it's applied to strategic talent initiatives? We, t- we talked to, we just talked about the great resignation, right? It's, it's a perfect segue. This is a question that is uh, near and dear to my heart, and I'm not sure I have an exact answer, Joe, but what we are looking at at Assure Care and Beyond is where automation is 100% proven, including machine learning and artificial intelligence. And I'll give you an example. Did you know that mammograms read by AI are more accurate than a human radiologist? And that's proven. So I'm thinking, okay, that's that's not even debated. Let's not even have a debate about it, right? That's that's done. But there are certain uh, aspects of medicine or healthcare that is still art. That is that is a combination of art and science. So I would say areas where AI and uh, and ML uh, and even NLP, na- natural language processing, have proven themselves, we should use them. You know, we should use them. And the, in the world of of law. You know, you can run AI, ML, and, and have a, a computer uh, read the legal case and give you the most salient points from it. There's nothing wrong with that. And so I feel like it, it is here. It is here to stay. And I and you see uh, some of this in our in our everyday lives. I mean, I think in the next five years or less, we will have self-driving cars. Uh, certain countries are already testing uh, aerial taxis. You can take a taxi in the air and cross the river from Kentucky to Ohio, where I live, right? Um, so, so that is already happening. And, and I feel like we will use more of that with our everyday lives. And I, I am seeing this in healthcare. I'll give you an example that, that we see a lot uh, in healthcare. Uh, take a condition like multiple sclerosis. So MS is an autoimmune disease. It's a Caucasian disease. Uh, people are mostly vitamin D deficient. It's confirmed through a spinal tap or a scan of your brain because you see you show spots. But other than your very costly infusion drug that contains MS, the only other way to contain MS is through a gluten-free diet. So it's no longer the the wheelchair sentence, it used to be that, oh, I have MS, I'll end up in the wheelchair. No, there are ways to guard against that. And I think we have to use AI ML to make sure as a clinician is seeing an MS patient, they're also inculcating AI ML to predict what their diet should be to match against their chronic disease. Uh, and I feel like that's that's here to stay because, you know, if you ask me as a, as a healthcare guy, I think you know obesity is is the pandemic that we need to fight with in America. The thing I struggle with, among other things, in the healthcare system is 
you know, just creating focus personally, right? That what you just described to me is a, a way, a mechanism to create focus on a, a diagnosis and a solution. And um, it, if that's there, it really provides clarity for a patient, right? Because um, that's what the patient really wants at the end of the day, clarity. Absolutely, Joe. And I'll, I'll give you one more statistic that I'm not proud of as a, as a leader in healthcare, but I believe AIML will help. An African-American male diabetic in Cincinnati, Ohio, everything else adjusted for household income, education, right, is six times less likely to receive the proper diabetic care compared to his Caucasian counterpart. And the sad part is that the same statistic is true in any metropolis of America. And we as a society should be unaccepting of that. And I believe artificial intelligence, machine learning, and algorithms will help us with racial disparities in healthcare. Yeah, I've supported the American Diabetes Association as a board member in the past and uh, know much about those statistics, but the way you just described it um, with all of the control uh, features of it. I, it's, ama- it's an amazing statistic. And it certainly should focus, you know, talking about focus, should focus energies on making it different, taking that, taking that out of the system. Let me ask you a little bit about uh, back on the talent top topic. You know, people that are listening today are keenly aware of um, what's going on with the, you know, the great resignation and the changes in the, the talent pool around the world. It's not just, you know, isolated to one country or another. There are big shifts happening, um, you know, given all the top-down approaches that are out there, and whether it's approaches to management or approaches to talent development. Do you, do you view that there's a bottom-up approach uh, that is a better approach to really getting outcomes uh, in the talent development space? I think so. And the way I would answer that, Joe, is I look for natural inquisition. In my life, you could be a somebody who majored in horticulture and you come to me as a health tech CEO and say, hey, I like to work in at, at a short care. Or even in prior life when I ran a health system, I want to know, are you naturally inquisitive where you just don't want to challenge the status quo, but but really want to improve things at its core, you should ask why. Like, like, have you ever seen a healthcare bill? It's complicated. Have you ever seen a hospital bill? It's complicated. And, and can somebody simplify it? Uh, as an example, when I look for talent, you know, I, I look for, um, uh, you know, being respectful of what we have accomplished, but when a new blood comes in, you know, can we learn from other industries? You know, uh, aviation is a very safe industry and has all kinds of checks before a flight takes off. But how can we still amputate the wrong limb in America? Right. So I feel like uh, the bottom ups, uh, the bottom up approach can can definitely work. And I think maybe for me, the truth is a combination of a top down and a bottom up, because you also want to make sure you're pairing somebody's career against their personality. So I have made the error in my life of promoting an amazing, amazing surgeon as a leader of a surgery group, and he or she failed miserably. They were a great surgeon. That does not equate for them to be a leader of a medical group. That's a different skill set. And so what I try to focus on is... 
while you're trying to pair people's passion with their talent, as I mentioned earlier, you also need to pair people's career path that their personality supports. And I feel like that is often less talked about when we do career planning or, or talent development. So let's talk about um, experimentation. You know, we talk about the PMI with our, uh, our agile practitioners um, specifically, and then certainly with project managers, the importance of experimentation. You know, big part of experimentation is understanding and recognizing that they don't, all experiments do not succeed. Many fail. What, what is the role of experimentation in your organization? So the role of experimentation for, for us uh, in my organization is around, is this test being done to make things better? Could be people, process, or technology, really. So, you know, like I said, we try to give a psychologically safe environment. We encourage them to have naive questions, especially under the guise of, of experimentation, which also includes the the obligation to dissent, the expectation to dissent. It also includes that there will be chaos while you're innovating. There will be ambiguity. And like you said, most of most experimentations fail initially, right? But do you have the perseverance and the environment to get back on the saddle and try a little differently, you know, improvise from your learnings? But I always say, you know, you know, what are you trying to, what's the why? What are you trying to address here before you experiment? You have to be clear on that. Like I lose patience when people are not clear on the why. It's okay. We may struggle with the how. We may refine the how. But can we please align on the why? And I've seen a lot of projects get started where, you know, we, they got the funding and everybody is uh, hunky-dory and rah-rah, but their why was weak. and Not everybody was aligned. There was a definitional gap in the why, and we just can't have that. So how do you think project leaders um, strengthen their focus on business value or, or you know, even value beyond business value, right? Like fin- beyond financial value, we'll say non-financial measures as well. I think they have to understand how the industry works first. And uh, I've learned this the hard way. I've hired a lot of great project managers who knew the, how to do a project, but they didn't know the broader uh, context of how the industry worked and how their companies fit in the industry. So I feel like I would encourage your subscribership, anybody listening to this, to say, okay, do you know how, how, what's the purpose of your company? What are the five things they are best at? What are the next five things they get beaten by the competition? How do they make their money? What's the Pareto? What's the cost structure? How do you drive people? What motivates people in that industry? You know, what's the reimbursement look like? And I feel like those, I've seen time and time again, Joe, where project managers who understand industry knowledge are just that much better at their job because they can answer questions like the why. They can, they can connect people to a higher purpose. They can reinforce the business purpose frequently, right? I feel like that's, that's something that, that is, uh, you know, should be non-negotiable. So I, I've heard quite a bit, a nice thread through the whole conversation, um, I heard a lot about lifelong learning, whether it's yourself or within your organization. And I would suspect you'd want to um, encourage that on the, the audience here today uh, to, to really pursue that. I definitely heard it today. So how could you, what kind of advice could you offer our listeners on, on future-proofing their capabilities and their careers? I would say there are three things, if, if I would conclude 
uh, this conversation, Joe, that have, again, served me well uh, in my life. And I believe all three of these things are under your control. And those are your attitude, your preparedness, and then effort during game time. And I, I teach this to my, my children, at least I try to, for anybody who has kids, you can only, you know, say so much and then they make their own decision. But I feel like those are three things that have been under my direct control. And when it comes to preparedness, yeah, I try to improve myself every day. Every day is a learning. And the more I learn, I feel like I've learned uh, so much more to learn. And I think it, as you, <clears throat> to future-proofing, people's capabilities, it also comes with, with these three things. If your attitude is not right, you really can't future-proof anything. If you're not prepared, you will always have lack of confidence. And if you're not putting in the right effort, you know, you know that you're not being truthful to, your, to yourself and your t- teammates. So I feel like attitude, preparedness, and effort are things that are under one's direct control. And I learned that the harder way because, you know, in the beginning of my career, I was like, well... Why is so-and-so not happening to me or this, this promotion or how, can, how do I apply at this? And then I, I, I realized um, that I, there's a lot that I had to invest in myself and then, then go compete against the best in the world. You know what? And it boils down to one thing, one word, choice. You have a choice to do these three things and to do them well. Oh, that's well said, Joe. Yes, you have a choice. It's often missed, right? Because we, we make choices constantly every day, right? And you choose to do something else instead of these three things, right? You, you don't lose sight on that either. You're, you're making a choice to do something else. So choose these three, these three things and you're going to find yourself in a better position is what you're telling us. And have fun. Have fun in your career. You know, it, it, it's, it's okay to be around people who, who inject humor, who you can, you can lay your guard down. They get to know you as, a, as your true self. I feel like those are things I wish I knew earlier when I was younger and, and naive. Me too. So that's a fourth. We'll add fun to the list. I really appreciate um, your insights today. It's been fantastic. Um, I'd like to spend a lot more time with you, but I know your time is very challenged. And um, everybody in the audience, I'm sure, learned something today. And we'd like to have you back sometime. Or I certainly like to meet you. Thank you again. Thank you, Joe. It's been my honor and privilege. And thank you for having me today. I appreciate it. Thanks again, Yusuf. Thanks for listening to Center Stage. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and leave a rating or review. We'd love your feedback. To hear more episodes of Center Stage, visit Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast service. Or head to pmi.org slash center stage. <laughs>